You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had such a good time sitting down with one of my closest friends and just a giant and legend in the beverage world, Mr. Alan Katz. Alan Katz is a director of mixology and spirits education for Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits of New York. He is also the co-founder of the New York Distilling Company in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He produces Dorothy Parker, New York Gin, Perry Tots, Navy Strength Gin, Mr. Katz, Rock and Rye, and Ragtime Rye, named the highest rated American craft rye whiskey by the New York Times. He is a foremost authority on spirits and distilling. Alan has worked as a business consultant in the cocktail development for some of the most recognized brands in the beverage industry. He is also the chairman for Slow Food USA. Alan sat down and he shared with me his journey in the beverage community. Also, his feelings around great drinks, great food, and why it is so important to him. So sit back, relax. Grab your favorite Perry Tots cocktail and enjoy the show. Alan, welcome to Served Up. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Hi, Bridget. It's my pleasure. You know, you and I, we've been friends for such a long time. And I do think that you are one of the most interesting people that I've met and that is a friend of mine in the beverage industry and outside the industry as well. Can you share with our listeners a bit about your journey in the beverage world and how did you really enter the beverage world? Yeah, it's my pleasure. Uh, you know, the truth is uh, when I recount it now, uh, having lived in New York City for almost 30 years, it's really step after step of stepping into the greatest good fortune I can imagine. I moved to New York in the early 90s like many people, pursuing something else. I had aspirations in music or perhaps to be a conductor. And I did pursue some of those things to zero degree of success, but I had fun pursuing it. And, you know, you got to pay the bills. And just like everyone else, it seemed at the time I got into restaurant and bar work. And it wasn't that easy. I had had some limited experience in my teens and early 20s. And it felt like it took me all summer just to get a job at a bar. I finally did. And it was sort of felt like a way I went. It was an exciting way to come to New York to see not every walk of life, but such a diverse collection of people, depending on the time of day, the time of evening, who was on the subway. Uh, if I was working, I worked for the most part downtown. I was lucky. I lived and worked downtown uh, I think for 17 years straight. And once in a while, I would go uptown. And the truth is, 
I ended up living in the East Village for a great period of time while I was a serviceable bartender. And I'll really stress that it was about customer service at the time. You know, I'm talking about 1992, 93, 94. I certainly wasn't paying attention, for example, to say, well, why is this particular rum perhaps in the well? Are the limes from Mexico or California at any given time of year? What's the type of sugar we're using? It was no question about that. It was vi- not none, but very few recipes and old Mr. Boston's book, et cetera. It was about, hey, come in, know the drinks that your customers are going to order and make sure they are having a very good time. And that's the way I approached it. And we were still getting tipped out in cash. And it was a great time. And I felt as alive as as I probably ever have. And the truth is, as the 90s went along, I just sort of had this great, profound experience after another. And to make a long story somewhat short, I ended up uh, going to Italy on a whim. And again, stepped into this great fortune that turned into me working in and for a cooking school in Northwest Tuscany. I had no business being there. But again, you know, the snippet to add some humor to it was, or is, I was drinking a Guinness beer on the beach in Tuscany. Who the hell's doing that? (laughs) It made no sense. But there I was, and I met these two women, and they were uh, opening and running this beautiful school that through eight months a year was recreational, and three months a year was professional, and then they took August off. And they said, to my astonishment, you should come work with us. I didn't ask what I would do. I just thought, this will be amazing. And so I did. And less than three months later, I was living in Northwest Tuscany, uh, working in a vineyard, uh, harvesting olives. And I I referenced this point in my life because it was the first time I had been in such close proximity to ingredients that I was using, food or drink. We were picking vegetables and herbs from a garden every day. We were going to the butcher uh, when it made sense. The bakery every morning at 6.45 a.m. The fishmonger came because we were in proximity to the sea twice a week. And it just realigned my brain about where ingredients come from, whether it's grains for whiskey, whether it's botanicals for gin. That wasn't quite in my mind yet. But really about who grows these things that ultimately we get to derive great pleasure from. And after a couple of years, I came back to New York and I was really, I would say, hellbent on discovering what, if anything, might be authentic American gastronomy. And lo and behold, it was really sitting right in front of me. And while I've come to the conclusion that there are only two things, barbecue of the American South being the profound example, but that the other is cocktails. and. You could just feel juices flowing. At this point in New York City's culinary history, the Food Network had just really come into its own. It was all actual cooking shows then. You would watch chefs cook and to each their own. But all of these sort of philosophical elements about paying attention to where ingredients came from started to inform me as I went back to the bar. And I just had great fortune. I met Gary Regan around that time and Dale at that time. And then for me, what became a very significant introduction was to Dave Wandrich. And I believe he had yet to write 
his, if I'm not mistaken, first cocktail book, which was called Killer Cocktails, a flip book uh, of cocktail recipes. And we were both just energized at the concept of rediscovering Jerry Thomas. I thought I knew something about the guy. I knew nothing. And there I was. And I remember the night. It was a cold December night. I'm with Dave and a couple of other friends. And after the third Manhattan, I thought to myself, I better just shut up and listen. And we ended up producing a tremendous party as a tribute to Jerry Thomas that became this pseudo international event. And I knew then, this is where I want to be. I'm going to pay more attention, not just to bartending and cocktails, but to the derivation of spirits. Where do they come from? What's the point of origin? What are the ingredients that they're made from? And of equal importance, who are the people making them? Woo! I'll cut oh, it there. Okay. Well, you just scratched the surface. I got excited. So many it. things. I'm taking notes over here to keep track. So I want to take it back to Italy because it's such a fascinating story. And you were so brave just on a whim to just to go and follow your heart and your palate, right? Can you talk a bit about your experience with slow food? Yeah, sure. With the organization uh, yeah. and what you did, because it's a big, important part of your career. And yes, I know you understood flavors and how lucky were you in your backyard to have the freshness from the local folks. It's so rare, at least here in America, it is truly rare to have that experience with everything, fruits, vegetables, you mentioned fish. I mean, all of it right there at your, at your fingertips. So how did you become part of Slow Food and up to the level that you did? Well, for those who have perhaps never heard of this nonprofit organization, it's called Slow Food in America. It's called Slow Food USA. And it's an organization that was born in the mid 80s in Italy. And in its first iteration, it really was a dramatic affront, nearly militant affront to the opening of a McDonald's on the Spanish steps in Rome. And it was easy for anyone, whether you're a fan of fast food, not a fan of fast food, you could understand, and I certainly could at the time, uh, when I was living in Italy here in, in the mid-90s, uh, why, from an Italian standpoint and an Italian cultural standpoint, they were not such big fans of McDonald's. They really wanted to protect their food heritage and their, by and large, wine heritage also. And I just had fallen in love with the romance of Italy. It was a tremendous escape for me by language, by music, by style. I had never really been out of the country before. And, you know, if you've ever been to Italy or particularly a small countryside town, you know with some immediacy that you can fall in love with it very quickly. And I did. And, and all around me were these signs for slow food. The logo is a little snail. Let's just not rush things. Let's take the time not just to savor food, but to enjoy our friends' company and our family's company. And while we're here and alive together, to use these opportunities as experiences to be as alive as possible. And, and that's what I took away with it. I didn't really become involved with slow food while I was living in Italy. But when I moved back to New York, in what I would say was a tremendous fit of melancholy, as if I was talking to myself, why did I just leave Italy? You know, this was not Euro days. This was Lira days, pre 
the dollar was strong. I was in a groove, but also felt like I'm on to the next thing. I've got to go discover something else for myself. And so when I moved back to New York, without hesitation, I had looked up uh, to see if slow food actually existed in New York. And lo and behold, and this is the absolute truth, a small office, meaning the second bedroom of someone's apartment, had just been opened to essentially relaunch slow food in the United States. And I was picking up restaurant and bar gigs, but I otherwise had a fair amount of free time. And I said, well, I'd be happy to volunteer. I think these are things I'm, I'm really about, internal monologue. And I became, you know, volunteer number two or three. And over the course of a decade, sort of became an international Uber volunteer. It was a misnomer that I was employed by Slow Food, but it, it became a paramount part of my life, my education. It was nearly as much an influence on my adult life as my parents. And on a very personal level, you know my parents and how much they mean to me. That slow food really became like a, a third parent to me from an educational standpoint. And it was really helping the organization shift not only from an appreciation of food and drink heritage, but really to one of education and through education, preserving some of these important food and beverage traditions. Yeah, and so for 10 years, I, I sort of walked that life. I had other jobs. They took a backseat to slow food life. I was traveling and going to other cities in the U.S., other countries. And all along, it was a privilege because for the most part, it was places I had never been. And I was immersed in local food and drink culture, whether it was in Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, whether it was in Austin, Texas, uh, the panhandle of Florida, but also cities in Europe and Mexico. And it just, it just opened my eyes to the possibilities of a global community sort of focused on the same things in, in great celebration. So with your ties to slow food, you know, 10 years is such, such a, a long time to be part of such a cool organization. And is that what really brought you to some terrific connections within the beverage world, but not just only the beverage world, you also have these amazing relationships and friendships within the culinary world, you know, with all the chefs. Does this, was this like just a benefit from being part of Slow Food? I'd have to say it was. I mean, it was really a combination of all these things. Uh, you know, as you know, I, I tend to be very excitable. And I'm not saying that that's always contagious, but it does help me seek out at my own scale and pace, adventure, excitement. Uh, I sort of, you know, have a few daily mantras and one of them is, why not? You know, why not? I ask myself that all the time. And it was, well, there's a chef doing something interesting. Why not ask them about it? What is the influence? Was it their parents? Was it some other professional experience? And I think for me, it's just an interest, most of all, uh, in people. And in, in terms of bringing it around to cocktails and beverage, Again, it was being in the right place at the right time, because in the mid-90s, it's not like there was this real jiving cocktail culture, uh, or at least not one that was grandly uh, aware of itself uh, yet. But by the late 90s, really, you know, I often reference New Year's Eve 1999 
And there were the sum total of four cocktail bars, by my estimation, in New York City. And there was Angel Share in the East Village. It's still there. There was a great bar in the West Teens called Passerby, owned by none other than Toby Cicchini, founder of the creator of the Cosmopolitan and still a bar owner in Brooklyn. But it had a great sort of two and a half room vibe with a Saturday night fever dance floor. And you could just feel this energy flowing. And he was making what we would call proper cocktails. There was the Rainbow Room up in Midtown. I'd gone there once. It was a little bit out of my budget, but I was aware of it. And then New Year's Eve 1999 on Eldridge Street on the Lower East Side, Milk and Honey opened. And there were some other restaurants that had cocktail programs and they had dessert cocktail programs. But to me, those were the four, the four horsemen, the four most profound. And I was living sort of in the midst of that downtown area uh, in the East Village. It just made it easy to access. And I was bartending, but I was not cocktail bartending. And so to see this transformation take place between 1999 through the course of the next few years, really just added on to, for me to that slow food experience as a point of discovery. You are so lucky to have those boots on the ground during what we now call, you know, the, the second cocktail renaissance, right? We're living through that, I believe, still. I and, and what attributed to that um, here in the United States, definitely what was happening in New York just um, spread started spreading out to the other coast, which is incredible. So talk to me about then where from, you know, just being in New York and you have your site on all these amazing cocktail bars that really from there more and more and more started springing up across New York. Let's be real, right? How did you then land your gig at Southern? Well, that, how did that, that happen? The, yeah, that was the funny thing. I mean, in a very intimate way, it's a combination of our dear friend, Francesco, Francesco LaFranconi. He had come to give a presentation at Restaurant Danielle, this high-end four-star restaurant uh, in, in Upper Midtown Manhattan. And I couldn't even tell you why I was invited. But there he was in his signature white barman's jacket, his dinner jacket. And I was at still the height of my Italian prowess, having only recently returned from Italy, I could still very much understand it and speak it reasonably well, the language that is. And Francesco, this beautiful, silky, almost effortless bartender, at the time, his Italian accent was a little bit thicker. And I'd be honest, like it was yesterday, no one paid attention to him. And I went up to him afterward and introduced myself. And I'm not sure if he had ever been in New York City before. Maybe he had. But I invited him out the next day. Would he like to see the city? And we spent the day as tourists doing some interesting things. We went to some restaurants. There were not a lot of cocktail bars to visit. But we, we visited a few places. And it was almost in that moment we became fast friends. That's one half of the story, because the truth is, in my lifeblood in the 90s in particular, working in bars and restaurants, Southern Glazers, at the time, Southern Wine and Spirits, did not exist in New York State, therefore not in New York City. I never ordered products from this distributor before. And when Southern moved here, 
again, back to my slow food experience, an importer from San Francisco who I was close friends with said, I'd like you to meet some friends of mine. And he introduced me in particular to a titanic figure in the history of Southern Glazers, a man by the name of Jim Allen. And Jim had opened up many states on behalf of the chaplains in particular. And he had moved to New York to be part of the opening team of Southern at the time. And Jim called me. He was really looking for connections. Who were the young people in positions to buy, in particular, wine, but wine and spirits? And I would say maybe every four to six weeks, I would make a lunch reservation. I would feign at the end of the meal, putting my hand out to take the check. And he would put his big hand on mine and say, no, 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 Alan, I've got this one. And we started talking about, you know, the relevance of cocktail programs at bars. You know, I thought it might be almost a shock to the system for a large distributor to be aware that tiny shoebox, jewelbox-sized cocktail bars that were opening, again, at the time, primarily in downtown Manhattan, were grossing over a million dollars a year selling cocktails in tiny little bespoke glasses. And at the time, it felt like, well, it was sort of over the head of, of really any distributor. And after about a year of this uh, entertaining range of experiences with Mr. Allen, uh, he said, you've got to come in and, and talk to our group. And, and that was really my first official introduction. And they were looking for someone who could fulfill a role of one that I've over the years really described as advocacy. It's a large part education, but it's how to be equal parts advocate for the brands that we represent at Southern Glazers, advocates for the accounts that we work with, and equally so, sort of in the three-legged stool, uh, as an advocate for the sales reps. And it was about finding the right time and place for the different spirits that we were charged with selling and communicating to our community here in New York. And at the time, it wasn't a huge spirits portfolio, to be honest. And so it really was about training and education. And in a large part, which to my surprise was not something a lot of people at the time were paying attention to, about showing bars and restaurants and bartenders and bar managers how to really focus on gross profit in building a cocktail program. And I would say very humbly, that's sort of in my earliest years with Southern, how I was able to make a, a pretty decent name for myself beyond what at the time was, hey, can you come in and give us a comprehensive training on a specific category of spirits? We're past that now, which is great. As you're talking about your career here at, you know, at Southern, I remember the first time I met you and I don't remember what year it was, but it was foggy and it was rainy. And I was on a work trip with Mary Barranco, um, another fella. And I think it was Serafin Alvarado, Master Salmonier. And I said, we have to meet up with Alan Katz. I need to meet him. It's our New York guy. You know, he knows everything about this city. He knows everyone. And we met you on Broadway. And I remember you had a trench coat on and I remember you had a hat on and you were just terribly, you looked almost like something out of a movie. It was just, you were so intriguing to me right away. Like, who is this guy? 
And then, you know, took us around the town and showed us great cocktail bars and we had a dinner. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, is this guy for real? You know, (laughs) your knowledge is off the charts. And I'm happy to say you are, you know, in every way. What I remember from that trip is everyone wanted to go to the top of the Empire State Building. And we did. And it was foggy and And rainy and totally shitty out. And we totally did. (laughs) Just to say we've been to the top. I tried to tell everyone, but. We it was did the it. first time yet you'd ever be at the Empire State Building and there was no one in line. Absolutely. <laughs> Made it up to the top and came right back down to say that we could do it. But um, so that really takes us to the next uh, part of your career, which is so exciting, which is um, a big part of what you do today. And I would love to talk to you about how the New York Distilling Company came to be. I know that that's a big passion for you. And so if you could maybe take us through that journey. It's my pleasure. You know, the truth is it it goes back to this phrase, why not? And it's not restlessness, or at least I don't think it is, but really more so curiosity. And as you know, because we've had the pleasure to travel to many far-flung places together, one of the great privileges of this role of mixologist or educator at Southern Glazers, particularly back in the day and, and long before these pandemic times, was the opportunity to travel and get inside the nuts and bolts, not just of the distilling, but the business of distilling from the vantage point of the brands that we have the privilege to work with. And so in a very short order, a short period of time, all of a sudden I had been to Kentucky and Tennessee and California and Mexico and Cognac and parts of England and other places. And the truth is that the time in my life where the light bulb went off and the thunderbolts and the lightning flashes was on the first trip that I ever took to Plymouth, England. And I'm not from New York. I had a tremendous childhood in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, I knew when I was 12 or 13, I wanted to live in New York City. And since I've been 20 years old, this is where I've been living. And you can do the math. I'm coming up on 30 years later. And the truth is, of all the places I had been up until that point, to walk around the bend in Plymouth, England, and see a distillery there, I was stunned into submission. An urban distillery. And I love the pastoral nature of Cognac or Kentucky or the highlands uh, of Mexico, but I'm not going to go live there. I'm not living in pastoral New Jersey or West Virginia or Maryland. I love those places too, in many cases, but I love living here. And I thought, wow, that's something that's fascinating. How does an urban distillery operate? And when I came back, I started doing some research. And the truth is, It was several years of research, um, but that's okay. And I wasn't always sure it was going to come to fruition. But again, it was the confluence of so much good fortune. One, it was one part self-education. Two, at the time, the very good graces uh, of the leadership at Southern Glazers in New York, but also uh, in Miami, to say, hey, this is something that could be very interesting that was uniquely important to me. It galvanized me. Uh, If it didn't work at the time, I don't think I would have left 
Southern to go try and open a distillery, to be very honest. But at the time, I was able to combine these things with everyone's best wishes and best intentions, and in a way, use what became the New York Distilling Company and uh, our related cocktail bar as its own educational facility and to bring bartenders and sommeliers and media to a live working distillery without specific regard to brands that we were working with and say, this is the nuts and bolts, just as it had been presented to me on all those trips, many of which, as I said, you and I have been able to take together. And that became a model for me to say, this is what I want to share with other people. And you have, and I'm lucky enough to have been to your distillery and it's absolutely phenomenal. Can we talk about some of the things that you make at the distillery sure, and how those sure. came to be? And where your passion, you know, where's your passion for whiskey and bourbon? Where, where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I like things that taste good. I, you know, they, they, they taste good to me. And it's like when I'm educating on any product, I really emphasize right up front that my ambition and intention is not to leave saying, please, I hope you love this product, whether it's mine or anyone else's. It's about sharing an experience so that we've just taken another notch on the dial to trusting your own palate, trusting your own intuition, and perhaps saying to yourself, why not? And for me, you know, going back to the distillery fantasy, it really was sort of in this moment still of the heightened uh, cocktail renaissance uh, the the earliest origins of it. And in many ways, I had only recently discovered gin in some authentic fashion. I knew what gin was, but I had never tasted, you know, a range of gins or really paid attention to what the botanical makeup was. And I often reference, you know, at the time in New York City, if you went to even the largest retailers, there might have been two shelves of gin at any given store. If you go today, there might be 30 or 40 shelves. And again, we're in New York City. There's no big footprint. There's no huge box store here. And so I was interested in exploring that because there was such a tremendous amount of freedom and creativity afforded any distiller who wants to create gin from scratch. Now, on the rye whiskey side, it really felt like it was part of my own personal heritage. And I had started paying attention, if you will, to rye whiskey when I was 17 and started drinking Manhattans in downtown Baltimore with my grandmother. And we would go to the Belvedere Hotel in downtown Baltimore. And there was uh, two bars there. And we would have rye whiskey Manhattans. Now, in Maryland, if you asked for rye whiskey, you would get American rye. But at the time, by and large, if you went to any bar in the United States, again, early to mid-90s, you probably were not going to find American rye whiskey. There just wasn't a lot of it around. And so I thought, well, I, I do love whiskey. And it's not limited to rye. I'm a fanatic about bourbon and Japanese whiskey and Taiwanese whiskey. And now a whole selection of whiskeys that's coming out of places like Australia and Western Europe. It's just fascinating because nothing is static. It's just, it's this constant motion of new people bringing their own perspective and point of discovery. But at the time, I thought, well, boy, there's a great story on American rye whiskey still to be told. And if I went to a random mall in the United States and, and surveyed 100 people, most of them 
if not all of them at the time, probably wouldn't have an idea of the origins of and the significance in American cocktail history that rye whiskey plays. And it's not to take away from any other style, but I just thought if I'm going to do something with every bit of passion that I have, this would make the most sense and I could get the most excited about it. And the truth is, back to the slow food days, that I had agricultural relationships in upstate New York. And and this is something rather subtle that I, I, frankly, now that I think about it, rarely talk about in the origins of the distillery. We could have just as easily made bourbon. Now, everyone knows that bourbon is a predominance of corn, at least 51% corn in the mash bill, in the grain recipe. Well, most farmers grow corn for profit. They grow corn to sell it. Still to this day, most farmers grow rye as a cover crop. It tends to just get plowed under. There's not as big an audience commercially to buy rye as an agricultural crop. And so, you know, when you go to a farmer and say, hey, rather than just plowing this under, what if I paid you for it? They don't say no. It's obvious. And and the truth is, you know, rye has this wonderful uh, environmental story as well. Unlike, say, wheat, barley, corn, all wonderful things, of course, when we love them. But rye in particular and the way it grows, when it's planted late, late, late in the fall, post-autumn harvest, and how it germinates under snowpack in the winter, is a grain that is built to preserve soil, in other words, diminish erosion, and retain water. And so it retains not only the water as it's germinating over winter, but in the combination of retaining uh, the soil composition, it means it retains the nutrients for the soil itself. And so, you know, for me, it was, all right, let's, let's take a crack at this and try over time to tell a, a fresh but also historic story about rye in one sense from the United States. But as we increased the distillery's capacity, as we engaged, you know, real authentic whiskey production, it also became a story about New York rye and heirloom rye and a broader sense of a heritage around this style of whiskey. And it's delicious. Thank you. <laughs> it takes time. I mean, yeah. it, you know, if I had a, a character trait that I hope to keep my whole life, it's ridiculous patience. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, obscene patience. Obscene patience. And, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold gonna you make, to that, friend. Yeah, sure. <laughs> now that you put Please it up do. there. <laughs> Please do. Uh, um, beyond, you know, the rise and the beautiful gin that you make, I just would like to know your thoughts. And I don't believe that your distillery has delved into this category as of yet, but it is getting some buzz. And that is the American single malt. Um, have you had a chance to try any? Have you explored that category yourself? And what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I'm very excited by it. We're not going to be making any. Our focus and dedication from the distillery standpoint is is really on rye uh, with great exactitude and singular focus. And it's been a decade, which you could say, wow, 10 years. But in the lifespan of making whiskey and aging whiskey, and if you're so privileged to have barrels to blend whiskey, 10 years is not that long a period of time to experiment with grains, mash bill, types of barrels, seasonality of aging, 
how your own palate develops along the same lines of your aging whiskey, it really is a point of great discovery. And I would apply that to my interest and appreciation for American single malt. Um, one, I think it's great that it's just there pushing the envelope uh, on a category that's history is by no means stayed, but it is a long history. And we tend to celebrate things that have centuries of cultural connection as if this is the only way. They've been doing this for 18 generations and they've passed it on and so forth and so on. And there's one side that says there's an absolutism to that. But the other in a very American spirit is why not? And to take that opportunity and say, what if we did this? What if we grew grains in our climate? Or what if we age things in this type of wood? And, and you just don't know unless you try. And that's the thing that's most exciting to me. I think we're in the early days. And so aging is a paramount thing for me. You got to give whiskey its time in a barrel to get some nuance of flavor. You know, for ours, which I is a mash bill comprised, you know, focused on rye, my simple objective is to create new American whiskey that tastes of more than just wood. And, you know, when it comes to the single malt range, there's a couple of things that, that enthuse me to a great deal. One is this exploration of making whiskey a particular way in a particular environment, whether it's geographical or environment for aging barrels, et cetera. But the other is, is I think it propels our curiosity about the much broader international category of single malt whiskey. What's the combination of grains? What is the heritage of these grains? Again, who's growing them? Are we creating a new thread, a new through line for a different part of the industry, in this case, agricultural, by replanting heritage grains or using this as a, a jumping off point for rediscovery of something that may or may not have even be, been distilled sometime in, in our human history? Um, and so, you know, there's there's lots of levels to it, even beyond, well, what's the finished product in the bottle? And and I applaud, you know, that level of curiosity and and commitment because anyone that's making whiskey on their own, I'm ready to give them a big hug and a kiss because <laughs> it takes time. Yeah, it does. And it takes so much time. I'm very intrigued by the category. It's a new category. Um, that is getting a lot of fuss here in the United States. So I really do appreciate, um, you know, your thoughts around it. I do think that with any category, whether it's new or even some of the categories that just aren't as popular, let's say here in the United States, like a soju, let's say. Yeah, I'll, I'll um, add. There's you could, a lot of education needs to go behind it, right? Well, I'll, I'll talk about, you know, that it's the perfect word because if there's, you know, at least one I call it major silver lining to life with COVID in these times. It's how both professionally, but even more so from a consumer standpoint, people are accessing information. And, you know, you could talk about, well, can you get a shelf talker with a score on it and a little blurb from a journalist? And those things can make a difference. But now we and anyone else can go online and not just get those blurbs, but see videos of actual production. 
talk to people in a live exchange about what the harvest was like. The points of education are so profound now. And I really believe this is going to be a lasting influence of this moment in time because we love to just consume this type of information. And on the whiskey front, it's phenomenal, whether it's rye or international whiskey or American single malt. We need access points to understand what the differences are and how these products came into being. Well, it is an exciting time right now, I believe, in the beverage world with things that are, you know, we are opening back up to a point, right? Um, I wouldn't say things uh, feel normal yet, but I do think that we're on the way to something good. So my question is, because you have really been in a unique position to be part of and to watch the this whole second coming of the cocktail and all these great bars opening, Alan, you know, what do you see has changed since when you first entered the beverage world? And right now, you know, I'm really talking about the beverage community, the bartender and the bar. And um, what things have you seen that have come out of COVID or that are coming out of COVID that you consider to be positive change in our industry? Well, you know, the things that I've seen evolve in our in our industry, in our community, is a little bit more than the step one, step two of the significance of diversity. And I, I don't just mean ethnic diversity and racial diversity and diversity by age. Those are vital. And it's but it's also diversity of experience. Because the thing I think that's most pleasing about the human interaction around the broadest sense of gastronomy is that we all taste things differently. It may be subtle. We might have the same tasting notes for a cocktail or a particular wine. But based on our, our upbringing, our previous experiences, where we're coming to, uh, this moment in time from our professional lives is really what excites me. And as I'm, I guess I would say, firmly in middle age, I really love the opportunity to taste and experience this part of our working life with people at this point much younger than I am in their 20s and 30s, because their life experience is completely different. Throwing names around is, for the most part, pretty meaningless. But to take a recipe and say, wow, when I was actually working in a bar restaurant, this range of vermouths didn't even exist, or in more likelihood, it existed but wasn't available in the United States. And it's an ingrained part of the palate of bartenders who are up and coming or have been working, say, even for the last 10 years. So a wholly different experience than mine, in many ways, more diverse. And it would be a missed opportunity from my curiosity to say, what are they tasting? Why do they do a split base with these two ingredients? Why is someone mixing mezcal with whiskey? I've never done that before. And that's what keeps things fresh for me and is most exciting that I've seen in a more recent evolution, even pre-COVID. And, you know, again, silver lining wise, I would take two things. One is, I think, the sharing of information, which for a long time now has been instantaneous. You know, we can see it. Someone in Melbourne has a cocktail recipe, and all of a sudden, it's crisscrossed the world in eight hours. Have you seen? Did you see the photo of? 
Have you tasted it? Do you know anyone who's been to that bar? It's amazing. And it's so satisfying. I think compounding that in a positive way is really this sharing of information, really down to the nitty gritty, whether it's technique. Uh, and technique sometimes can just be for fun and behind closed doors. Uh, but sometimes it's very useful. And in our livelihood, it, you know, it does come down most often to a combination of where's the point of pleasure and where's the bottom line? There's always a bottom line. And so, you know, techniques uh, that make bartending more efficient, whether it's batching cocktails or kegging cocktails or partially batching or using different techniques of preservation are some things that we talked about and implemented from time to time uh, in the last, you know, half dozen, maybe even 10 years, at least from my experience sporadically. But they become vital and instrumental parts of the efficiency of service. And for all the times that we've either been joked at to our face or behind our back, how long do I have to sit here waiting for that cocktail? Those days will come back. There's a certain pleasure of watching the artistry of a bartender who knows what they're doing with great confidence create and serve me a cocktail. But in these times where in New York City, we still have timed seatings in many ways, or we're really looking again at the bottom line for our friends who are running bars and restaurants, we're trying to help them turn tables and turn seats. And if there's an efficiency that provides the same quality, but shave some of that time off by techniques of preservation or batching or kegging, et cetera, then, then those are really valuable lessons and experiments, I think, that, that will continue to be explored. Yeah, I agree with you so much. I mean, anything that will help to speed up service, but still keeping the integrity of the service. And then also bringing in, you know, many states are still allowed to do like a cocktails to go or have made that a permanent part of their law. So a lot of really cool things have definitely come out of our industry. And I do feel that people are yearning very much for that feel of hospitality, that feeling that you get when you belly up to your favorite bar yeah. and have that conversation with, with someone um, that you really enjoy seeing, you know, your local bartender, server, whatever it might be, um, bar owner. So I think that um, we have a greater appreciation than we've ever had before for hospitality. Which I couldn't is, agree more. It's fantastic. Alan, what's your favorite cocktail? Well, I call it my deathbed cocktail. And, you know, I'm, it's not oh, like Lord have mercy. Grim. But, okay. but it is asked from time to time. And so mm -hmm. I know this answer. Like if you woke me up at 3.30 in the morning, my favorite cocktail is a Manhattan. I don't always have the same recipe. But okay. it is absolutely my favorite cocktail. Oh, okay. Well, I can't wait to have a Manhattan with you, hopefully sometime soon. So. Um, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on all the social media channels at at NY Distilling. Very good. And if they want to come and visit your distillery, where do they go? You can look up the New York Distilling Company at nydistilling.com. Uh, we're in Williamsburg. And the bar is open and uh, tours will come back into play this spring as well. And uh, we're chugging away. It'd be great if anybody's interested, contact me and we'll crack a barrel or two. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to thank you so much, Alan, for being on Served Up, for spending time with me today, 
for being one of my dearest friends. And I, I want to wish you just some great health and just a whole lot of peace. So thank, thank you, you so much, Bridget. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!